If you have a Bible, if you'll open it up to 1 John chapter 3, we're continuing our series in 1 John that we've called Certainty. And if you don't have one and you want to follow in one of the Bibles that you'll see under the chairs, you can open up the Black Bible to page 1022. It'll be on page 1022 in the Black Bibles you'll see there. Um, Just want to let you know, schedule-wise, a few things that are coming up. Again, remind you of the baptism this week. Um, I'll be back with you again uh, in 1 John next week, and then I'll be gone for three weeks. So pray for me, because I'm going to miss you guys, okay? It's going to be hard for me to be away that long. Um, So if there are sheep that need to be fed or wolves that need to be shot, you're going to have to contact one of the elders or one of the church staff while I'm gone for three weeks. Um, It's a little bit of a, to translate it in Fort Hood language, kind of pastor's war college I'll be going to for a little while. Um, Be doing some training uh, for a couple of weeks and then a week of vacation uh, and then return after that. So I'll be back in the pulpit next week. We'll see you again next week and then be gone after that for three Sundays. Um, But if you'll open your Bibles to 1 John 3, we're going to continue this look at certainty that we see in 1 John. We've seen a lot of parallels with the book of James. If you're familiar with the book of James, where the false teachers will say, I have this great idea, I have this new message, I have this new teaching, but it doesn't line up with the way they live. It's not fleshed out in real life in the way that they love or in the things that they do. And John is again and again telling us that this has to line up. These things have to go together. So we've used the artwork to remind us of that, of head, heart, and hands, that our doctrine is not merely something that we say, but our doctrine is also something that we express in the way that we love people. And our doctrine, our message is something that we express in the things that we do with our hands. And so again and again, John is turning it around and examining it from these different perspectives. This week, we're calling the message, Certain Message, Love. There's a certain message that is the true message, and love has to be at the center of that. If love is not at the center of the message, if love is not happening, it's not the right message. It is not the right message. There there are often people that will call you to their message, call you to their ideas, but they're not living what they preach. They're not practicing what they preach. And John says that's a clear mark that these are wolves. It's a clear mark that these are people that you can't trust. So if you will follow along with me, we'll start in verse 11. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It says that's the message. It's not that complicated. These false teachers are going to be trying to tell you, follow this message. We have a better message. He's saying, no, this is the message. But this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now he's going to flush this out. What does this look like? Verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. 
Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Let me pray for us and ask that God would teach us. There's a lot here. John is kind of referencing the entire Bible in just a few verses, and so we're going to try to touch on those things, uh, but we're going to pray that God would give us focus. Let's pray. God, help us to learn from you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you haven't left us without instruction. Uh, We thank you that your spirit is here, and we ask uh, that our minds and our hearts would be opened. God, I pray that you would help us to have hearts that are open to the reality that you are a gracious and loving God and that we would be changed by that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've seen the movie A Christmas Story, you might remember the scene. Any of you have seen this movie, A Christmas Story? A few of you? Some of you afraid to admit it? That's okay. Um, it's this old kind of 50s, uh, or it's set in the 50s. It was made in the 80s, I think. But it's this movie set in the 50s. And in this story, uh, the young boy, Ralphie, is listening to these radio dramas, right? Before TV, uh, you would just listen to stories. You wouldn't watch stories, but you would listen to stories. So they're listening to these stories on the radio. And there are these things that you can send off for, you know, prizes you can send off for and have mailed to you. And he gets a decoder ring from the Little Orphan Annie series he's been listening to on the radio. And he is so excited now that he finally got his decoder ring in the mail. He wants to decode the secret message. And so he's waiting for it, and he's waiting for it. And they finally uh, share the secret message over the radio show. And he's using the ring, and he's writing it down. And he's finally gotten the secret message. Finally, he's... He's broken in. He's like he's in the inner ring now, right? He's a he's a part of this secret society of of spies and you know intelligent people that know this secret knowledge. And the message when he's finally decoded it with his decoder ring is you ready? It's drink more Ovaltine. <laughs> drink more Ovaltine. He's he's kind of let down. I mean, he's like I was expecting more than this. It's not. It's not everything that I had hoped for. It's not quite the secret knowledge that I was looking for. And I use that as an example because the false teachers of the first century, really just like the false teachers of today, are selling secret knowledge. They're selling secret knowledge. They're often called the Gnostics. I don't know if you've heard this term before, but the Greek word uh, for knowledge is gnosis. So you can remember that by you've got gnosis and knowledge, right? So they kind of sound alike knowledge gnosis so they were called the gnostics so you don't always pronounce the g the the gnostics they were selling secret knowledge they were saying we have the answers we have the secret knowledge but the problem is their secret knowledge doesn't include jesus and it doesn't live itself out in love and john is saying this is one of the ways we know that they're not telling the truth they don't love each other there's a certain message we've been given from the beginning, it's the same message. It hasn't changed. We are to love one another. If, if love isn't happening, those teachers can't be trusted. Those teachers can't be trusted. They might as well just be saying, drink more Ovaltine. Not that Ovaltine's bad. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But in the, in the text, the first thing that 
that John pulls out, if you look at verse 11, 12, on through 15, is that real love is uh, something that gives life rather than bringing death. And so the first thing that I want us to kind of dwell on is that love does not murder. He uses the example of Cain and Abel. Love does not murder. Love doesn't destroy. Love doesn't bring death. Love brings life. Love brings life. And he uses Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4 as this primary example of what this looks like. And it's interesting, you'll, you'll notice if you've read through the New Testament, Cain and Abel are referenced a lot in the New Testament. It's kind of this, this pivotal story that shows the difference between living in a life-giving way and, and living in a hateful, murdering way. That's the example we have with Cain and Abel. So looking again at 11 through 15, again, he says, this is a message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another, okay? So we should love one another. That's core to our message Now, how does this play itself out? Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So there was jealousy. I have a picture here of Cain and Abel. This is Cain murdering Abel. It's It's a dark story. It's the first murder in the Bible. I mean, Adam and Eve don't trust God in chapter 3 of Genesis. And then you have a murder in chapter 4. I mean, everything kind of goes downhill from there. Adam and Eve say, no, we can be our own gods. We don't need God's help. We can do things on our own. And and death breaks in. And that's really the rest of the story. The story still uh, that's been going on and on and on is the story of hate and death and murder. Jesus breaks in to rescue us from that. And so now the time of the story we live in is the darkness is fading and the light is continuing to shine more and more. That's what John referenced earlier uh, in 1 John. He said, now the darkness is fading, and so we should be a part of the light shining. We should be a part of the people that are loving, not hating. Very simple, right? It's, It's not that complicated. God loves us, so we should love one another. Cain hated his brother Abel. Cain killed Abel because Abel did the right thing, and Cain did the wrong thing. Instead of repenting, instead of saying, God, I sinned, forgive me, Cain says, no, I don't need God's help. I'm going to justify myself. I'm going to make this right. I'll go kill the other guy. And and John really says that we're all on one of these two roads. We're all either on the love road or the hate road. And that we should recognize if we're on the hate road, if we're not loving others, we need to repent. We need to repent. We need to turn around and ask God for his help. Ask God to heal us and help us so that we would love others. So he uses this example. He says, Cain hated his brother because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then in verse 13, John says, Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. He says, Don't be surprised that you'll be treated as Abel was. That if you have a restored relationship with God, if you understand that you're a sinner that needs a Savior, you can't save yourself, you need God's work on your behalf, others that want to save themselves are going to hate you because you're going to be assigned to them that they're not God. You're going to be assigned to them that we need an alien righteous that, righteousness, that we, we can't create a righteousness of our own, we can't save ourselves, we're not God, we need God's help, and people that want to be God are going to hate that. They're going to despise that. They're going to say, you Christians, God's just a crutch for you. You can't do life on your own. You need God to help you. They're going to hate that you live your life in dependence on God, that you're trusting him for his help. He says again in verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers. The world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love 
the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. Again, he's saying there's this, there's this clear difference. There's those that hate and there's those that love. We talked about this last week when we talked about the division, that the clarity of Jesus being at war against the devil and against sin and that we are to love others, that we are to bring life, we are to practice righteousness, and that the way that we show that we're children of God is, is not that we have the same eye color as God, right? It's not that we have the same skin color as God. It's that we live out his characteristics of doing what's right and loving those around us. He says in verse 15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So we can abide in life, and we can love people well. We can care more about them than we care about ourselves as Jesus loved us, or we can abide in death, and we can hate. And he makes the equation here, just like Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount, that if we're hating our brother, that that's the same thing as murder in our heart. We just haven't had the opportunity to get away with it yet. I mean, really, that's the reality. Hating someone is just, I'm scared I'll get caught if I murder them, so I'm just going to hate them, right? And that's basically what hate is. Jesus says if your heart is hating someone, you, you want them dead, you want them gone, you want them out of the way. So there's two different ways of, of living life. I just want to, without turning to Genesis 4, I just want to kind of recall the different ways of living because, as I said, this example comes up again and again in the New Testament. You've got Cain who gave to God something of what he had to offer. The text of the Hebrew says he just gave God some. He just gave God part of what he had. And then you had Abel who gave God his best who gave God the strength, gave God the cream of his crop, gave God the best of what he had. And those are examples of two different views of God. One person views God as generous. We love because he first loved us. The other views God as out to get him. And so you begin to see yourself as an orphan that has to fight and scrap and claw and murder and hate and do whatever you need to do to establish yourself. Because you can't trust the people around you to love you. You can't trust God to love you, so you're going to have to love yourself, and you're going to have to establish your own kingdom. And that's the example that we have of Cain. You're you're either on the road to love or you're on the road to hate. You're either living as an adopted son, daughter of God, thinking God has taken care of me, he's given me life, and so I have more than enough to share and I can love others. Or you're thinking, I've got to watch out for myself because God's not going to take care of me. And that's going to cause you to hate. It's going to cause you to take from others instead of giving to others. My challenge for you this morning is which which road are you on? It's never too late to change roads. And I think in the next point, John's going to actually challenge us that you can you can waver, right? You can be on the road to love and you can kind of waver back towards hate, but you can repent. You can turn back and, and re-recognize God's love for you. Re-recognize God's grace towards you and continue on then the road of love. The next thing that he says as we move through the text is that love is proved by our deeds. It's shown, it's uh, real love is something that works itself out in life. Just as James says in the book of James, John is echoing that here. He's saying real love uh, has shoe leather, right? Real love, the rubber meets the road. Real, Real love looks like something. Real love is action, not just talk and doctrine. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So he says, that is the example of real love. 
Jesus is the example of real love. So you're not sure what love is. Well, love looks like dying for other people. Love looks like sacrificing yourself for the sake of others. Trusting that God's got you. Trusting in the resurrecting power of the Father. You're willing to give yourself for others. That, that's the example of love. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We love because He first loved us. We, didn't, we lay down our lives for other people because He laid down His life for us. Verse 17 He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Guys, if if you have something to share to others and someone's in need, someone's in real need, which is sometimes hard for us to relate to because since we live in the richest country in the world, we we don't often see real need, right? Sometimes we live our lives isolated from genuine need. So I challenge you to place yourself in positions where you can really see touch, be aware of real real need. But he says, if you see real need and you close your heart against it, how does God's love abide in you? How does love, God's love abide in that person? Verse 18, he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He says, put shoe leather to it. Put, put reality to your love. Prove it by your deeds. Actually do something, right? In, in James, he says, uh, if, you're, if your faith doesn't have works, and that's not really a real faith. It's dead. So if you talk love, I love you, I love you, I love you, but you never do anything to express love, the Bible would say, well, that's not really love. And again, we have to remind ourselves, because in our culture, we believe that love is a feeling, right? I mean, that's what we're taught. We're taught to believe that love is a feeling. It's something you can fall into, like a, a shallow pond or something. You know, it's like, I've I've fallen into it, and now I feel this way towards someone. That's not the way the Bible uses it. The Bible says that love is something you do. You express love. You bind yourself to someone we saw last week, that God loves us, makes us his children. He, He takes action. He does for us. He moves towards us in our need. And so John is saying, children, don't don't just love and talk, but love and deed. Do love. Don't just talk a good game, but actually live it out. And then I want to reference over to Deuteronomy 15 for just a minute. Let me see how we're doing on time. Yeah, we're good. All right. You flip over. If you're in the Black Bibles, you can flip over to page 159. It's Deuteronomy chapter 15. Um, and you, you don't have to turn there. You can just listen even if you want for the, for the markers here. You'll, you'll hear the language uh, in Deuteronomy 15 reflected in what John is talking about here. So John says that we should not close our heart against the brother that has need, right? Our heart should be open, not closed. Deuteronomy 15:7, God says, "If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother." But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say the seventh year the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. 
it's interesting uh, just for a minute to, to not focus on what he says in First John, but you'll remember that phrase, uh, you will always have poor with you. There will never cease to be poor in the land. You recognize that Jesus used that reference when the woman was anointing him with perfume, spending all this money on worshiping Jesus. His disciples said, well, that money could have been used to help the poor. And Jesus said, the poor will always be with us. Sometimes conservative people like that quote and say, that means Jesus doesn't want us to help the poor because the poor will always be around. So we might not even, shouldn't even try, right? That's, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 15. And in Deuteronomy 15, he says, the poor will always be with you. So every day you'll be helping the poor. That's what God's people do. We're always helping the poor. There will always be poor to help. So Jesus quoting that in the Gospels, he's not saying, so don't help the poor. He's saying, that's just default. We're always going to be helping the poor. It's okay also to take money and worship Jesus, but you're also going to be sharing your resources to help the poor. But go back again now to the attitude he talks about. He says, don't shut your hands, don't shut your heart, but open your hands, open your heart. And so he's talking about two different heart dispositions we can have. And again, going back to First John, I want you to see that that's based on our view of God. If you view God as generous, you'll be generous to others. We see this in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 as well. That if you see God as generous, you'll be generous. If you see God as someone who takes what is not his, then you'll be the kind of person that takes what is not yours. So there's two views of God here. There's the generous view of God, and there's the greedy view of God. Is God greedy or is God generous? Is God open-handed towards us? Is God open-hearted towards us? Or is God closed off towards us? The gospel, John says in verse 16, proves what love is. It proves God's posture towards us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus laid down his life for us. So that proves the attitude of God towards us. And in response, we're to live that way towards other people. In response, we are to help those in need. Now, we shouldn't be indiscriminate about it, right? We, we, should, we should do it wisely. Uh, and I would recommend a great resource to you. Is, there's a book called When Helping Hurts. When Helping Hurts by Fickert and Corbett, dual authors. Uh, and the book is called When Helping Hurts. And it's a great book in helping us to understand how we can help those who are in need without enabling them and keeping them trapped in a cycle of poverty. We need to be wise about it, right? Thessalonians says those who don't work should not eat. Right? There's some common sense barriers and boundaries and so we shouldn't fall into the trap that political discourse often falls into that there are those that believe in self-reliance and there's those that believe in mercy and those are the only two options well the bible combines those two things right the bible combines that the bible says you should be merciful to those that are in need and you should teach them to be self-reliant and those things go together you should get involved in the stickiness of the situation and not just give indiscriminately to make your heart feel better but you should give in a real way that actually helps people. You're actually loving them. You're not just enabling them. You're not just entrapping them into an ongoing cycle of poverty waiting for a handout. So great book I'd recommend on helping the poor from a Christian perspective when helping hurts by Fickert and Corbett. And we've tried to adopt a lot of those postures in the way that we do missions in Guatemala. When we help hurting people in Guatemala, we'd, I'd encourage you to get involved with what we're doing there. It's a great example um, of helping those that are hurting, helping those that don't have the same resources we have, but trying to do it in a sustainable way, trying to do it in a way that's not just setting them up for failure, but actually helping them to be successful. I have a picture here of uh, 
Guatemala. This is a picture just looking out the front porch of the church that we often work with, New Jerusalem Church there in San Ramundo, Guatemala. And you can see the dirty streets, the crowded streets, the unfinished buildings and uh, general chaos there. It's kind of hard to see the details in that picture. Um, But when we go to that environment, we have a lot of resources that they don't have. And we want to be wise in the way that we share the resources that we have to help them, again, in a sustainable way, in a way that reflects the gospel. Again, don't just give to make yourself feel better, but actually give in a way that's loving people. Give in a way where there are boundaries, where there is wisdom, where you're doing it in a long-term, sustainable way. Look at verse 19 and 20. What's really interesting here is that he says... There's a back-and-forth dynamic that when your heart begins to be closed off, that you can kind of reopen your heart as you re-examine the gospel. Look at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. John talks about that reality of we're we're selfish, right? We're not always perfectly generous. Our heart is not always open. And so just like in Deuteronomy 15 where God was saying, don't close your heart, keep opening your heart back up. In the real world where we live, the world of scams and sin and lies, we might help someone and get burned. And then we could be tempted to then close our heart and see, see, that's what I get for helping people. I'm never going to help anybody again. And the scripture says, keep opening your heart back up. Keep trying. Keep looking at, verse 16, what Jesus did for us. That's real love. He laid down his life for us. So in the same way, we should lay down our lives for others. Historic theology talks about this concept called the means of grace. The means of grace. So it's like this idea that that grace is transmitted to us through certain practices in church life. We talk about communion. We're going to share that today where it it just helps us to re-believe and re-feel and reconfirm God's grace to us. The preaching of the word, right? We're taught, we're reminded the gospel is beaten to our brain. God loves me. Jesus died for me. We talk about worship as a means of grace. We talk about prayer as a means of grace. And I believe here, when you look at Deuteronomy 15 and you compare that with what he's saying here in 1 John 3, he's saying that helping people is also a kind of means of grace. It's a way that God helps us to remember what love looks like. We step out in faith and we we try it again. We're scared, right, because we've been hurt, we've been burned, we've been taken advantage of. But we continue to look back at the cross and say, God is trustworthy, I know God is generous. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for me, and so I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to help this person. It's not always going to be awesome, it's not always going to be wonderful, but it is a means of grace. He helps us to reopen our heart, to have a reassurance before God. He tells us in verse 20, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. You're going to be okay. Step out in faith. Begin hoping again. Begin helping people again. Trusting that God is good. Trusting that God has got you. Come with us to Guatemala. Serve in the nursery. Sponsor a kid through Compassion International. We had a Compassion Sunday several weeks ago. Over 50 new kids sponsored in, in addition to the 50 or 100 that our church already sponsored. Um, These are ways, these are means of grace for us to practice what we preach, to prove our love by our deeds, take real steps to help people in need. Get to know the, the scary, weird people in your life. 
and begin praying that God would use you to help them. Don't wall yourself off from people, but be open that God wants to use you. Again, don't do it a dumb way. I mean, I would say read this book when helping hurts. Be, be wise. Have boundaries. Don't try to just go out and save the whole world all at once. Remember, you're not Jesus, right? He is. But open your heart to helping those around you. But the last thing that we see in this process as we begin to re-entrust our heart to God is that love is confident. We can have this growing confidence in our own life as we help others and as we look at the at the cross, we look at the example of Jesus giving himself for us and then we practice giving ourselves to others, we can have a growing confidence. Look at verse 21. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So he's saying if you continue this process of, of reopening your heart to others, you're not closing your heart off, you're not having a condemning heart, but you're reopening your heart to others, we can have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Now, if you grew up in kind of a legalistic religion, you might hear that phrase, we get whatever we want because we keep His commandments. Right? You might hear that through the lens of legalism that because we're perfect and we do everything right, right? we don't smoke or chew or date girls that do, He's going to do what we want. God's going to satisfy our every wish, right? So you need to be careful to read it in context, right? First John is a very dangerous book to just snatch out one verse. You have to read the whole thing in context because he likes to use these kind of polarizing phrases. He uses these kind of hand grenade phrases, extreme phrases, and they balance each other out when you read it in context. So let's continue to read here. It says in verse 23, And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. So he's not saying, if you perfectly keep every single rule in your life, you have this sort of external righteousness that has then earned you a place of having your prayers answered by God. He says, no, ultimately the commandment is believing in Jesus, trusting that God loves you, trusting that verse 16 is true, that Jesus laid down his life for you and loving one another, just as he's commanded us. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So in the earlier section, we saw this dynamic of looking back at the gospel, opening our heart back up to hurting people. And this, this dance, it goes back and forth of, okay, I got to trust God. This is going to be hard, but I'm going to trust God. And then I'm going to help people. And I need to trust God again. I need his grace to be able to keep doing this. And that gives us a growing assurance a growing openness of our heart before others and before God. We begin learning to love others. And he says, ending there with verse 24, that he gives us the spirit to reassure us, to grow us, right? It's not just a formula, but the spirit supernaturally helps us. Like it says in Romans 8, sometimes we don't even know what to pray, but the spirit intercedes with groanings that words can't even express. He talks about that in other places too, that the spirit cries out, Abba, Father, in our hearts, we need the Spirit. Don't reduce it to a formula. And you'll have this growing confidence as you put your weight on Him more and more. You'll have this confidence so you're not hiding from God anymore like Adam and Eve did, but you're seeking Him. You're talking to Him. So again, another test for you, of are you on the love road or are you on the hate road, is what's your posture before God? Are you hiding from Him because you think He's an ogre? Are you talking to him? Do you have this freedom in your relationship with God? If you don't have a freedom in your relationship with God, you don't really understand the gospel that he died to save you. 
that he's taking care of your sins. You don't have to take care of your sins. Jesus did that for you. I have a picture here that I think expresses uh, many of our relationships with God. A little boy hiding behind a tree. Um, it's not the best hiding spot in the world, right? You can see the little boy there, but that's often how we relate to God, right? Okay, I'm hiding. He can't see me. I'm not going to talk to him. Well, well, God knows what you're thinking. He knows where you are. He, you, you can't really hide from God. That's what Adam and Eve tried to do in the garden, though. They tried to hide themselves. God asks us to open ourselves to him, to trust him with our sin, to say, I can't hide it. I can't fix it. I can't clean it up myself. I'm going to have to bring it to God. And what that does is that then that translates into a confident relationship with him. Then we have confidence. Real love grows out of a confidence with God. Again, we, we see that in the example of Cain and Abel. We see that in the parable of the talents. Those that spend the talents think that the master's generous. Those that hide the talents think that the master is not generous, is an ogre. And so I, I have a chart here from a prayer book that I would really recommend to you. I've talked about this a few months back when I was reading it with my family and just continue to recommend this. It's one of the best books I've read in the last 10 years. It's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I have my copy that you can look at, but please don't take it. It's up front here. Um, but I took this chart out of A Praying Life, and he says we often go to two extremes in our relationship with God, right? We don't have this confidence to talk to God, to have a relationship with Him in prayer. We're not praying, and there's two extremes here that we can go to. One is not asking at all. We're separated from God. We think that God doesn't do anything, right? We're kind of functionally a deist, right? We just kind of think God's out there, but he doesn't really care. We become a fatalist. God's going to do what he wants to do, but he has, you know, he doesn't care about me. He didn't want to hear what I have to say. Um, and the antidote to this is asking boldly. And he quotes here Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Jesus is facing the cross. And Jesus says, if there's any other way, take this from me. Of course I don't want to go through this. He asks boldly. A lot of us would say, well, that's, that was improper of Jesus to pray that way. Wouldn't, wouldn't we? A lot of us think that way. We think, no, we should never ask for anything that we're not absolutely sure. And there's not like five systematic theology books that tells us it's okay to pray that way. So we're not going to say it. We're not going to ask it. No, be a little child and just come to him and just ask. Pray like a four-year-old. Don't pray like a 40-year-old, okay? Pray like a four-year-old. Your, your four-year-old just asks for anything. Can I, have a, can I have a horse? Well, I don't know, but thanks for asking. I mean, just, just bring your requests to him. Again and again, he says we should have this childlike relationship with him. Ask boldly. The other extreme is asking selfishly, right? Now, because uh, we, we are not a health and wealth church, because we tend to be oriented more towards Bible teaching here, uh, we don't do this as much, right? So this is more what we need to worry about is not talking to God at all because we're so worried about getting our theology and our doctrine straight. Over here, though, is the other extreme that, that some of us fall into, asking selfishly. This is the idea that God is just a cosmic vending machine, right? And then he's just there to fulfill every wish. He's just a big genie in a bottle. And he's there so you can have a new house. He's there so you can have a new car. Right? That's kind of another extreme and he says the antidote to that is complete surrender yet not what i will but what you will and so this book has been really helpful for me aligning the different passages on prayer and helping us see what it looks like to both ask boldly like bring everything to god 
but also to surrender to His will, to trust Him. I'm going to ask Him for everything, and then I'm going to trust Him to work it out. Because I don't know, you know, I don't know which prayers He should answer, yes, no, or maybe. So I'm going to bring Him to Him, because I'm the child and He's my Father. I'm going to trust Him to, to work that out. He's big enough to handle my prayers. And what I want to challenge you with is that if you have this growing confidence that Jesus loves you, then you'll talk to him. If you have a growing confidence that Jesus loves you, then your heart will be open to help others, and you'll begin laying your life down for others. You'll be on that road to love rather than the love the road to hate. As we talk through all these different things that we've seen in 1 John, what I'd encourage you to do is to go back and reread the Gospel of John. As we've been studying 1 John this summer, what we see again and again is he's referencing the Gospel of John again and again. And the references in the last few chapters of Jesus' life right before the cross, you have Jesus talking to the disciples in the Gospel of John in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Right in those chapters, right before he goes to the cross, you have him giving all this uh, information, sharing his love with his disciples, kind of giving last-minute instructions. And then you see in the letter of John, he's, he's pulling that out. He's talking about that. He's referencing that again. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth the world could not receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus promises earlier in that chapter, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending the Comforter to be with you. You're you're not on your own. God God is with you. You can trust Him. Ask Him. Come before Him him in confidence. And as you do that, then you'll be better equipped and better practiced at loving others around you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank You that You do love us. We thank You that You proved that in the Gospel, that You gave Your life for us to take our sins upon You yourself, but also to give us your righteousness. So God, help us to trust you. Help us to live in a new way because of that radical message that you loved us. Help us to love others because you loved us first. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.